The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we have reached the end of the year. This is our second to last show. We're starting to do that thing where we look back on the year that was. That will be, in fact, our last show coming up. And we're going to do a couple special things for our folks on Patreon. So if you haven't signed up for our Patreon community to get the weekly digest, also some of our updates, and we're doing Zoom calls, plus we're going to do some videos this week uh, for everybody on the Patreon community. Go to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. And a big thank you to every on Patreon who is supporting us. Kobus, if we look back on 2021 and we talk about what are the most important China-Africa stories, there is one that stands out far and above everything else, and that is the China-DR Congo story. It really kicked up back in May when Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi went to Sikomins and went into the mining belt and really laid down a line in the sand that basically said, the rules that we've been using for up to this point are going to change. And in fact, we are going to hold you to account for more of the infrastructure. We're going to push you on the contracts because the contracts that you signed, so said Felix Jessicati, under the Kabila administration, that's the prior president, uh, are not going to stand. And this led to a whole summer of controversy and tension and back and forth and propaganda. Then what we started to see in the fall is things started to calm down. But nonetheless, what has happened these past six, seven months has been remarkable. And it's emerged that the DR Congo today is by far the most consequential relationship that China has in Africa. And I think that will come as a surprise to a lot of people who've been following the story for a long time. But the reason why, in part, is because of the cobalt and the copper, but mostly the cobalt that's coming out of the southeastern DRC. So, Kobus, we've seen a lot of unprecedented behavior from the Chinese and how they engage Africa in the DRC. We've also seen it as a venue for great power competition. And again, I, I, I just what I've seen over the past year in this story has been nothing short of, of remarkable. It's also very interesting that the, the uh, China-DRC relationship has also become a space for civil society to kind of express their unhappiness with with the Chinese, including there's been a several kind of like big controversies around labor violence, um, around in- environmental degradation, all of these different issues, but they all kind of fit into this bigger issue of the mining contracts and the, and the profits, you know, because of course, you know, the, these are incredibly valuable commodities, the DRC is an incredibly poor country where is the money going you know so so i think you know that there's there's a lot there's a lot of, of questions around that issue and a lot of answers 
Just before we go on much further in the show, I just want to make something very, very clear. There are really two sets of stories, and people have been often mixing and conflating them. So there's been, in recent weeks, if you've noticed, the Chinese embassy in Kinshasa issued a warning for all of its nationals to evacuate three provinces in the eastern Congo, that is North Kivu, South Kivu, and Ituri province. Uh, They had a deadline of December 10th to get out, and if they didn't leave by December 10th, they were going to be on their own. Those Chinese miners that are out in those eastern provinces are small-scale independent miners. They are very different than the huge multinational mining companies, and this is at the center of these contract disputes with the president and the government in Kinshasa. So those are two very different stories. Just want to make sure we are clear on that, because I think a lot of people have, again, have crossed signals on that. So when we started to get towards the end of the year, things started to calm down a little bit. Then towards the end of November, a huge story dropped. 19 media outlets, five NGOs, in the U.S. and Europe poured through 3.5 million documents that were leaked from a Gabonese bank called Group BGFI Bank. And that detailed how tens of millions of dollars flowed to the former Congolese president, Joseph Kabila, his family and his associates. Now, a couple of the details that came out of this investigation that was dubbed Congo Hold Up, uh, at least $138 million passed through BGFI Bank, two companies owned by President Kabila's inner circle. An additional $105 million from various sources was also credited on those accounts belonging to the same group. And there's also a strong Chinese connection because according to the investigation's findings, millions of dollars went from various Chinese entities, again, through this bank to the Kabila network. And there is evidence that shows Chinese owners of the copper and cobalt mines did use that same bank to funnel millions as well. So lots of Chinese involvement, but very clear here, it's not only about the Chinese. Now, how all of this came together, the information was obtained by a Paris-based anti-corruption group called Platform to Protect Whistleblowers in Africa, and also by the French news site Mediapart. It was then shared with media organizations via the European Investigative Collaborations Network, along with five NGOs. Bloomberg News was also part of that effort, and journalists there spent six months going through all of the documents. They also spoke with dozens of sources across five continents around the world, both to confirm what they found in those leaked documents and also then to complement the investigation with some new information. Two of the journalists who worked on that investigative effort are with us today, and we're thrilled to have them. William Close is Bloomberg's reporter in Nigeria, but he formerly worked in the DR Congo. A very good afternoon to you, William. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to have you on the show. And we're also thrilled to have on the show Michael Cavanaugh, who is a Bloomberg correspondent in Kinshasa in the DR Congo. And a very good morning to you, Michael. Thanks, Eric. Great to talk. It's fantastic to have both of you on. This has been a huge story. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Let's kind of start at the beginning. How did you guys get involved in this investigation and give us the origins of how it all began? And then we're going to get into what you found a little bit later. But just talk to us about how this all started for you guys. Sure. I'll start with this one. Um, William and I have both been working on Congo for many, many years, Um around a decade, in William's case, maybe even more, and then for me since 2004. So we've had a, a bunch of experience in, in, in Congo, and we were presented uh, about a year and a half ago with the opportunity to look at um, some leaked files. 
um, as you can imagine, or as, as you've probably seen from some of the other collaborations or journalistic consortia, uh, Panama Papers and, and, and Paradise Papers and things like that. Um, it involves a lot of different media organizations doing a very complicated dance to figure out how to work together. It's not something that Bloomberg has, has previously done in the past. So, you know, this was something that Will and I, William and I worked on uh, really closely um, with our editors, with the top brass at Bloomberg, and then with all these different media organizations over the past more than six months to kind of claw through these documents, which were um, uploaded to a discrete server um, that we had access to and, and could search and um and we spent months and months just looking through file after file with the team, with the collaboration uh, between the different media outlets and NGOs, and where we all shared our, our uh, findings, and then were able to kind of piece together a bunch of stories. And one of the one of the stories, and in the and the story that William William and I thought was the most interesting because it's so underreported, um, is. The relationship between the Kabila family and the Chinese, the various Chinese companies, state-owned, some private, um, that have really taken over the mining sector in southeastern Congo. As you said, uh, the mining sector is is mainly there, uh, copper and cobalt. William, can you give us an idea of roughly kind of how, like, what proportion of the scandal also involves the Chinese actors? Of course, when we covered it, we were focusing on the Chinese angle. And then as I was reading all of these different stories, I, I realized, like, I actually have no idea, like, how serious the Chinese part of the story is compared to the breadth of, of the rest of it, because it's so huge. So, you know, so, so how do those two kind of fit into each other? So I think the um, Chinese aspect of this uh, of this leak is is relatively small, but a small part of three point five document four three point five million documents is still quite large. Obviously, there are the rest of our consortium members have published uh, dozens of stories now on on you know more than a hundred million dollars uh, being trans transiting BGFI from of state funds to companies uh, either owned by the Kabila family or the Kabila family's associates. We've had stories released by the consortium on the activities of individuals uh, sanctioned by the U.S. Uh, for financing Hezbollah. Um, there's been uh, stories about um, the Faroe Islands, about France, about Belgium, about Switzerland. Uh, you know, this is sort of, as the international finance works, it's taken in all sorts of corners of the world. Um, the Chinese aspect of it uh, centered really around one, well, one middleman and his company, a, uh, a guy who I'm sure we'll talk about more as, as, as the podcast goes on, a guy called uh, Du Wei and his um, company, uh, uh, Congo Construction Company. So, yeah, a relatively small slice of the leak. Um, was uh, about the uh, Chinese Chinese aspect of it, but a very sort of rich um, source of information, uh, sort of uh, an unprecedented glimpse into things that people may have suspected before, but there was uh, not much proof. Michael, let's get into who Duwei is. Let's talk about him and what role he played in this whole affair. Duwei is a, a fascinating character, Um and I, I should say that a lot of this work was actually done by the Sentry, which is an anti-corruption group um, out of Washington that worked closely with the consortium and put out a nearly 100-page report um, on, on Duway and Congo Construction Company and a lot of these other deals. And Du is a, an academic. Um, he studied international law. 
um, at Wuhan University. I think that's right. Um, and uh, he uh, got involved in, in Congo um, many years ago, more than a decade ago. Um, and was involved in the Sikomin project that you talked about, which is the the mining project that's linked to the $6.2 billion uh, minerals for infrastructure deal between China and Congo. And Duway worked for Sikomin for, for several years. Um, and then he suddenly switched over to the Congolese side. And that became very interesting because uh, uh, the person that he worked with, Moise Kanga, um, who is a Congolese businessman, um, Moise also works for the Kabila family for a company called Strategic Projects and Investments. He's the COO of, of that company. So what we saw in the documents was this link between Du Wei and between Moise Kanga, and they seem to be working in concert to transfer money from a variety of Chinese companies, but most importantly, the Sikomin mine itself, right? Because that's a, uh, a an important um, collaboration between China and Congo. State-owned companies uh, from both countries are involved in the project. And Du and, and Moise Kanga seem to transfer a lot of money from that project and from projects linked to, to Sikomin in various ways um, to companies that were linked to the Kabila family, often owned by Kabila family members. And Du was central in, in making that happen. Yeah, can you be a little more specific about what exactly he did? Why would Sino Hydro or these big Chinese state-owned enterprises need somebody like Du to be a middleman in this process between Sicko Means and the government? What was their their precise role that they played, these two fixers that you talked about? Mm, Will should, Will should answer that. He did a lot of the, the good work on this. Yeah. So their motives, I uh, I do not know. But essentially, you had uh, these rampant conflict of interests everywhere. You had Duway going from the, uh, as an employee of Sikomins, then moving in 2012, I think, to the government agency run by Akanga that was responsible for overseeing the um, the spending of the money under the, uh, under the Sino-Congolese uh, relationship. And you had uh, Akanga, both as the government official in charge of this agency, but also as uh, a representative CEO of uh, Kabila's private company. But the role that Du seemed to play in 2012, late 2012, he sets up a, this company, Congo Construction Company, CCC. And its main role seems to be, from our analysis of the banking records, it seems to be funneling money that comes from a Chinese origin to um, companies, entities, individuals associated with Joseph Kabila, uh, his fam uh, in, in, by which we mean his family and his uh, close political allies. So in the case of Sikumins, what we were talking about just now, there are in the summer of two, well, yes, the summer of 2016, in three separate payments, Sikumins sends $25 million dollars to um, to Du's company, CCC, at this bank from uh, BGFI, from which the uh, leak um, from which the leak documents came, and the majority of those funds we can trace were distributed by Du's company to um, to these Kabila affiliated uh, destinations. 
And do you have any idea of what exactly these sums were paying for? I mean, is it, is it possible to trace that? Or is it simply a, a kind of a, a, a you know, to, to, to kind of cement a general support from, from the Kabila side? Or do or is there any kind of like, a, you know, kind of idea of, of, of this payment triggering a particular something come, come in, in, in the future? One thing it could be is that um, one of the things that was holding back the Sikumins project and took many, many years to sort out was the lack of a reliable power supply. Um, uh, so you in 2016, around the time, between the first and third payment, in fact, so exactly the same kind time the payments were being made, the government, uh, but the Chinese parties, uh, China Railway and Power China, finally make a deal with the government, Congolese government, to resolve this problem and to build a um, rather a large power plant that will feed, primarily feed the Sikomines mine. This was happening. Uh, these the, the sort of end game of these rather tortuous, lengthy negotiations about this power plant were going on at this time that do CCC was distributing the money. And it says some sort of rather nice details that uh, the Century found, which was at this time that Du was distributing this money, he was also publishing a, a pair of academic papers uh, where he spoke about this um, power supply dilemma, as he called it, and how it um, threatened the ability of sickle means to reach its full capacity. And in another article, he, um, he decried the sort of unsophisticated and crude uh, tactics that uh, many Chinese companies resorted to in, in developing countries to win contracts um, all the time he was, uh, you know, handing out this money from Sikomins to uh, people uh, associated with the then president of the Congo. Is Du still in the DRC or is he back in China? You don't know where he is. We, uh, not <laughs> during the course of our investigation, obviously we gave everybody plenty of time, everyone we mentioned in the reporting, plenty of time to reply and to offer their, um, their, uh, their comments before we published. Uh, most people chose not to reply to us in this in this in this instance, but um, a couple of people who replied to us uh, told us that Du was no longer in um, in in the DRC. And and we should mention too that Du seemed to have uh, Du Du seems to have um, uh, deleted one of his WhatsApp accounts and one of his email accounts when Will was in touch with him to get a, a right of reply. Michael, what kind of reaction has has all of these revelations um, drawn from the DRC government? Do you have any any kind of idea about all of these all of this kind of continuous issues around the contracts and the re, the, the renegotiations of the contracts and so on? To which extent there was a direct connection between that and and you know kind of these revelations? Um, and you know, in, in more more in general, like you know, how, what 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 do you make of of the kind of official reaction in the DRC up to now? The, the reaction by the by the Congolese government at the moment has been has been interesting um, and it's hard to, it's hard to really sum sum up it's been a little bit all over the place um, in a lot of it has been very positive um, a lot of the the investigations that the Congo holdup consortium has has done um, it lines up perfectly with some of the investigation investigations that Congo's government has been doing, that the Inspector General of Finance has been doing um, for the past year or so now in Congo. And so in a lot of ways, our information complements theirs uh, as their information complements ours. Um, 
what you know what we're showing now and, and what I think that the Congolese government really hasn't had in the past when it's looked into or begun to look into some of these contracts is actual receipts of payments that seem to be facilitation payments. We can't always say for sure, obviously, um, but they seem to be facilitation payments between um, Chinese state-owned companies and uh, a middleman, Duwei, his company, that, that apparently ends up in the Kabila family's pockets. Um, and so that's something that I think even, you know, as, as much as, as you've talked about on the show before, the kind of move that Felix Chisichetti, the current president of Congo, is making to uh, consolidate his power and split ties with the former president, Joseph Kabila, who ruled Congo for 18 years, um, as much as he's been making uh, changes or uh, and, and bringing in his people people, he's never really gone after Kabila in particular. And I think what we're showing are are very close ties between the Kabila family and a lot of these companies that are going to be difficult for for the government to ignore. Um, That said, you can also see that, you know, the government's been a little bit defensive, um, uh, as have the Chinese, for for that matter, of course, the the embassy and some of these companies. Um, But the, the whole, you know, Congo holdup, it's not just about the Kabila family, as Will said, it's not just about Chinese. It's about a lot of business people from around the world, the enablers, um, the lawyers, um, the the various uh, auditing companies that are that are working uh, with with these banks, um, and it's also about some of the people in the current administration too. So um, it's a it's a it's a leak. It's a it's an investigation that takes into account kind of years of kleptocratic behavior that has become cultural in, in, in Congo's government. And so it calls into question the system. And I think it's going to take a lot of work um, to move beyond this kind of behavior. But I would say that's the kind of thing that we're seeing with the investigations that you've talked about on the show, um, prompted by the uh, uh, Inspector General of Finance, or just you know the oversight that's happening in Congo that hasn't happened in years with the new IMF program. The, the IMF has signed a $1.5 billion three-year program with Congo that includes a lot of oversight um, for governance um, and for the central bank and for Jacobine and for these mining companies. It's calling for audits into a lot of these uh, mining companies and deals. And so I think for the first time, we're seeing a way that... Uh, a, a new administration is holding a past administration to account in Congo. That's really exciting for us to see um, for the first time in, you know, 18 years. It's it's also worth mentioning that um, even before uh, the consortium, we and the consortium um, revealed these these sort of fishy payments um, through uh, C- of Chinese money through CCC to uh, people around the president. You know, even without that, there are all sorts of reasons why a uh, new president might um, be inclined to take a much closer look at uh, sickle means and um, the uh, overall uh, $6 billion minerals for infrastructure project, even without the, the sort of revelations that have come out over recent weeks. So on November 29th, uh, Sicko Means issued a press release where it said it was both amazed and indignant about the findings of the Congo holdup investigation. They denounced it and brushed it aside. 
Then there was a, a press conference just a couple of weeks ago featuring John Omumbo, who's the spokesman for the semi-official Sino-Congolese Program Coordination and Monitoring Office. He said, and I'm quoting here, this supposed investigation carried out by five NGOs and 19 Western media outlets, and emphasized the word Western, and that's important, uh, that is determined to sully the reputation of DRC institutions and to discourage investors, especially Chinese entrepreneurs. So he gave this fiery press conference where he didn't take any questions. It was at the Fleuve Hotel, very fancy five-star hotel in Kinshasa. And uh, and he and he really said that this was a Western plot to discredit the Congo, sounding very much like the traditional Chinese talking points on how anytime something negative comes up, it's a Western agenda to drive a wedge between China and the Congo or China and Africa. So very much the John Omumbo, a spokesman there, sounding that way. Michael, you guys, both of you actually, have been covering Sicko Means, and Sicko Means is central to this. And I think a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with Sicko Means. It was called at the back in the day the deal of the century. It was really the first mega China-Africa deal. At the, it started out at $9 billion, then came down to $6 billion. But it's been a really important bookmark in the broader China story in Africa. Uh, Michael, can you kind of take us back to 2008, 2007, to the origins of the deal so we can better understand Sicko Means and its role with Zheka Means and why it's so important in this story today? Sure. So, you know, Congo was at war for years from the mid-90s. Um, the war officially ended in 2003. It involved almost all of Congo's neighbors. It was bloody. The IRC famously said that, you know, more than 5 million people were killed in the fighting. And when Joseph Kabila came into power, so his, his father was a assassinated Laurent Desiree Kabila in 2001. And then Kabila, Joseph Kabila, who was only 29 at the time, he took over power. And then he signed a peace agreement with many of the nations involved. And then he was elected president in 2006. When this happened, he signed, he was looking for financing. The problem was, of course, you know, no one really wanted to, well, people wanted to invest in Congo, but they were very nervous about it. It was very risky. And, you know, as we all know, World Bank and IMF money comes with a lot of strings attached. And so the Chinese came in and they'd already had some of their companies um, working in some of the, the mining projects um, in Congo. And the Chinese government then came in and said, we have, a, we have a deal for you. We're going to give you money from China Exim Bank, um, and they're going to fund a bunch of infrastructure projects. And then they're also going to fund a $3.2 billion copper cobalt mine. mine and all of the, the money, the profits from the copper cobalt mine will go to pay back this, as you said, $9 billion deal. Now, the IMF looked at that, Western governments looked at that and said that was unsustainable, that debt. So they got them to reduce it to $6.2 billion. And then they started to go forward. And, you know, pretty quickly you saw um, in investments in, in roads, in hospitals, um, in a bunch of other projects, bridges, things like that, that were Congo desperately needed. And the plan was to build about $3 billion worth of of infrastructure projects. But the problem from the beginning, as you know, I think we've seen across Africa, is there was a, a huge lack of transparency into this deal. You know, people didn't have access to the contracts. 
the infrastructure projects, there was no audit audit of them. There certainly was no external independent audit. Um, we didn't even know which infrastructure projects were part of the infrastructure deal. It, it's one of the things we did as reporters for, for years um, was just try to figure out which Chinese projects actually belonged to the deal and which didn't. And it was overseen by, on the Congolese side, by this, this bureau that you talked about, the China Bureau, who was also equally untransparent. And I remember there was a, a press conference in 2013 in Kinshasa where we were able to ask, well, how much has been spent on infrastructure? And at the time, the, the bureau, Moise Kanga, the man we talked about earlier, who runs the bureau, he said that the Chinese companies through Exim Bank had paid a billion dollars in for infrastructure projects. Well, Congo's government only a few months ago said that the, the infra- only 825 million in infrastructure projects had been uh, accomplished at this point. So it, it's been a, a project that, you know, that the Sikomin mine began producing in about 2015. That project seems to be going well. It's an extraordinary mine. I've been there. I've been inside the plant. It's really, you know, world-class. It's a, it's a world-class copper cobalt mine. But on the infrastructure side, we're really seeing the projects lag behind. And less than a third of the promised infrastructure projects have been built. And we're now 13, 14 years into this, um, in, into this project. And so the new government is finally looking at the project and saying, what has happened here? What, what you know, why has this stopped? Um, and the, the questions are, and the reasons are complicated, as you can imagine. But you know, part of the reasons is is that on on the the it's just government governance issues, governance on, on the Congolese side, um, where I think some of the Chinese com- companies, in particular Exim Bank, was worried about being reimbursed um, for the projects that they were undertaking, and and now NGOs and you know journalists and the Congolese government itself, for the first time, is really taking a hard look at this project. This is work we've been doing for years in in Western mining companies, right? We've been writing about Glencore. And, and other mining companies operating in Congo and, and really scrutinizing them. And this is the first time, really, that we've been able to get a good look um, at this Chinese mining project and the affiliated projects in infrastructure and mining um, that, that haven't been, you know, that we haven't been able to look at because of su- such a lack of transparency. Yeah. So where do you think accountability lies for the lack of infrastructure and the lack of progress? Is it on the Chinese? I mean, again, it's all opaque, so it's difficult to figure out. But when you people blame the Chinese for this, that is the narrative that's that's dominant out there. But again, as you know, from living in the Congo, nothing is as simple as it seems. So where do you think, based on your time there, and William, you can chime in as well, because this dates back to when you were there as well. Is it on this more on the Sikomin side and the China Exim Bank side, or do you think it's more on the governance side and the fact that there's a capacity problem on the Congolese uh, in the Congolese government to to actually execute these projects? I think I'll, I'll start. There's a there's a tension inherent in the in the contract, and it's what's fascinating is Du Wei in one of his academic papers that the Century found. Um, he actually says this. He says he says the Chinese side wants to start the mine as soon as possible. And the Congolese side wants the infrastructure to be built as soon as possible. And there's a a tension inherent there um, between the two sides. But why can't both be done at the same time? They're not dependent on each other, are they? Um, Not not entirely, but when it comes to sort of risk um, on the China Exim Bank side, I think that they're reluctant to... uh, to, to send out all the money at, at first. 
Um, and, you know, I think that the Chinese just wanted the mine built as soon as possible so they could start capturing the, those funds um, in return. Um, I mean, I think, but I think that you're right. I mean, in theory, right, this is, as, as is always said, a win-win deal. And that should be the point. Um, but there have been governance issues from the beginning, um, you know, that I just mentioned, and a lack of transparency on both sides about the deal. And I, and I would say when it comes to who's to blame for the slowness of the project, well, I mean, again, the mine is working very well, but there are governance issues on the Congolese side. And obviously, they're, they're linked to in, in the Chinese companies as well um, that have slowed down the infrastructure projects. Um, Will probably has more to add about that. Well, yes, I think um, Exim Bank's conservatism, conservatism, conservatism or nerves at the beginning was probably a factor. Exim Bank actually stopped, um, uh, paused, uh, suspended the financing for a part and then was for, for a bit and then was persuaded to come back in the early 2010s. But yeah, if the Chinese parties were inclined to um, not give much information away and not to uh, be particularly transparent, they found their perfect partner in Joseph Kabila's presidency and this uh, this bureau we were talking about, run by Moise Kanga, was incredibly um, and untransparent. Uh, the Carter Center tried to do, did a big piece of work on um, on um, on uh, public uh, on natural resources a couple of years ago, and found it very very difficult to um, get anything out of them. And in my experience of reporting there for four and a half years, it was it was very very difficult. Um, they just before the, the election at which Joseph Kabila stood down, they thought about giving some interviews and they sort of did some and then they didn't like it. So they closed up again. Uh, but that, I think that was the first time since Michael had done one uh, five or six years before. So it was always very, very difficult to um, to get information out of out of them. And people and people would get co- uh, contradictory figures out of the bureau as well. So it was never entirely clear which set of figures to to report and if they were even um, accurate. And one, one of the things that happened at, at one point, which was funny, I remember the Congolese government officials used to always say to us, uh, the journalists, one of the great things, one of the features of the China-Congo contract is its lack of specificity. It's good to be vague. That way we can be flexible. And, you know, there's there's something to be said for that. On the other hand, the vagueness uh, is also is a, also means that it, it makes it very difficult to hold anyone to account because you don't know what the contract actually stands stipulates and calls for well in in all of these these documents of the uh, through throughout the the investigation how much evidence have you seen of direct involvement by the chinese embassy um in the drc and and other kind of government you know entities that the child like higher up in the chinese government compared to Chinese companies, and and I realize, of course, that there's that the, the line between those can be quite quite blurry, particularly on the state-owned enterprise side. But but to which extent was you know do 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 you locate the 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 kind of corruption on the Chinese side in 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 a kind of corporate field, and to which extent did it also spill over into the embassy and the state? I'd say that that's hard for us to really know. There's no doubt that you know, as you said, this was. Uh, an important deal for the Chinese government. The Chinese government did step in at one point because there was a hedge fund that was owed, um, let's say, nearly a hundred million dollars in debt after after um, after expenses and interest, and they tried to take. There was a there was a signing bonus that the 
uh, that Sikomin had to pay to Jacobin and, and to the Congolese government for $350 million. And at one point, this, this hedge fund tried to seize some of that money to pay off their debt. And the Chinese government stepped in and said, no, this deal is uh, a deal between sovereigns and you have no right to seize that money um, because this is a, a sovereign contract um, between two nations. So there has, have been some moments like that when the, the government itself, it's been very clear, um, has stepped into the deal. But um, in, in general, no, we don't see, uh, besides the typical sort of you know cheerleading um, from the embassy, uh, we don't see a, a whole lot of evidence, say, of high-level government involvement in 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 the documents that that we're seeing you know again as you said though cobus that these are state-owned companies for the most part um and so they are a external face of of china and have you seen any evidence that the united states is involved in this in any way because there have been rumors circulating in washington that u.s ambassador mike hammer has been pushing chesakati to to take action on these contracts. And again, maybe nothing involved with the investigation in Congo holdup, but certainly on the contract review, it's been suggested that the U.S. played a part in this. The word that I heard was that it was not an official policy from the State Department, but it was on Mike Hammer's own initiative to talk to Katie about this. So there's a difference that it wasn't an order coming from Washington, so not official policy. What has been the role, if any, of the U.S. that you guys are aware of in this whole controversy? The Sikomin deal is the most important deal in Congo. And so it has, you know, the IMF might call it something like the debt involved with it, macro-critical, which is to say that, you know, to look at the Congolese economy, you need to look at not just Sikomin, but the various Chinese mining deals, um, all mining deals, but Chinese in particular, because they really do dominate the sector. And therefore... There, the IMF for years has been saying we need to do an audit of Sikomin. This is this is not new in, in any way. And obviously, with the U.S. being the biggest shareholder uh, of the IMF, there's something behind it. And if you're looking for money as a new government, the idea that you would turn towards some of these Chinese-owned mines is not a surprising thing. I personally don't see any sort of grand strategy um, uh, on behalf of the U.S. to to try to fight or push back um, uh, Chinese involvement in the mining sector in Congo uh, in general, that could change. There certainly is a lot of uncomfortableness um, in the American government about the dominance of, of the Chinese um, in in Congo. But, you know, there aren't a lot of American companies that want to invest in, in Congo, uh, especially anymore. And this is, you know, one of the interesting things that, that we've seen is, is because of regulations like the bribery law in the UK or, or the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in, in the US or in Canada, countries are, are much more, excuse me, uh, Western companies are, are a lot more careful about investing in, in, in Congo. And so Chinese companies have filled that void. And I think I think a lot of companies complain, as do some governments, that the playing field isn't level and they need to do more to, to change that. So, I, I, you know, I, I can imagine that there was a push 
from maybe even Mike Hammer explicitly to take a look at these contracts. But, you know, they've done, also done a lot of the, the Department of Justice is investigating Glencore. They've sanctioned Dan Gertler, right? This is not just a, sorry, Dan Gertler is an Israeli billionaire who has huge interests in Congo. Um, in other words, the U.S. is not just going after Congo. They're going after, excuse me, going after China or Chinese companies. They're going after corruption in the hopes that uh, that will help the Chisichetti administration um, find money and, um, you know, do a better job governing the country. And the the irony of all this is that should the DOJ investigation into Glencore have as a consequence them for some reason either selling their two mines in Congo or or basically being separated from their two key assets in Congo, that it would most likely be Chinese investors, Chinese companies that took them over. And that is something that Glencore's only too aware of and lets people know. How optimistic are both of you that that this that these revelations um, and and the the current kind of attention from the DRC government is actually going to change how business works in the in the DRC? Do you do you are, are you kind of pessimistic that it's going to continue as corruptly as it has for for a long time, or do you see a flicker of hope for actual reform? I think there is already a, a little bit of hope. Um, you know these. There have been a bunch of brave whistleblowers who over the past few years have been leaking documents that have allowed um, NGOs in Congo, outside of Congo, journalists in Congo and outside. We've been able to see for the first time, not for the first time, but um, in detail, a lot of the corruption that went on over the past you know decade or so, um, if, if not more. And the government, the change in government, has had a salutary effect too. This Inspector General of Finance really is doing a bunch of investigations into contracts, into deals that, uh, and we've never seen this. I mean, I've never seen this in f- more than 15 years in Congo. So I-, I have a lot of optimism about that. As you know, you've talked about many times now on, on the podcast, the Congolese government is, is now investigating SECOMIN and re-looking at the terms of that agreement um, and hoping to, to start to you know, get more money for these infrastructure projects in the coming years. That that deal is still in effect. Uh, still in effect. Um, the same thing is true for one of the biggest mines in Congo, a copper cobalt mine run by China Molybdenum Corporation. Um, the Congolese government is 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 looking at the terms of that agreement too. And I I have a you know the worry of course that everybody says is well are is the Chisichetti administration just going to replace the Kabila machine with the Chisichetti machine. And we certainly don't know that yet. But I mean, this is sort of the point of the democratic process is, well, there are elections coming up in two years. And if, and if, uh, you know, if, if he is, if he is stealing, and if it comes out, well, he can be, he can be uh, removed through an electoral process. So um, I, I, I'm optimistic. You know, let me just run a theory my own personal theory, and and it's not as informed as yours, but I'd like to get your take on it, that I believe that Chesakati, he needs this controversy to be done. He wants it behind him now. He, he Again, thinking about those elections in 2023, he needs to focus on the campaign, and already he's leaning into the campaign now, starting. And I think come January, that's going to be the kickoff. He needs the Chinese to f- help fund that campaign. So maybe it's not corruption in the big chunks of money flowing into his relatives, but you guys know Washington politics very well, and there's all sorts of different ways to make sure money gets into the right hands. So it doesn't have to be as crass as it used to be in the Congo. 
The fact is, is that Chesakati needs the mining companies to help fund his campaign, and the mining companies need Chesakati to keep things calm and stable. What do you guys think of that? Am I completely off base, or do you think there's some merit to that? No, I, I think that uh, that, uh, that notion of coexistence uh, is uh, a, a desired coexistence between Chinese miners and, and Shisekedi is probably right, because one of the things uh, he's been in power now since January 2019, and one of the um, uh, criticisms made against him is that he talks a lot, says all the right things, but hasn't actually done very much uh, to be to his to his. To, to defend him briefly, he spent um, the best part of, what was it, two years um, sort of in an uneasy coalition with Joseph Kabila and his followers and then and then uh, sort of managed to get decisively get the upper hand over Kabila and sort of either co-opt or purge all of um, all of Kabila's uh, loyalists. So he has some justification in saying, you know, I lost two years of my term. But certainly now, with uh, only uh, two years left, uh, he really needs to sort of get cracking. And one of the ways uh, that could be done would be to have his own relationship his, with the Chinese miners and sort of restructure some of these deals, whether it's um, uh, whether it's the huge uh, sickle means uh, minerals for for infrastructure project or. Um, China, the, the terms of China molybdenum's contracts at uh, TFM or the other mine they've, they're building, Kisanfu. I think, uh, yeah, in that, that sense, he would be keen to uh, get this done. You know, we, we focus a lot, obviously, on the, on the Chinese angle on this, but, but as you pointed out, it's, it's this huge investigation that, that pulls in a lot of other countries. You know, I've, I, was, I was looking through, through some of the coverage and I was seeing, you know, some of your Dutch colleagues and, 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 and Belgian colleagues, like, you know, linking to, to all kinds of, you know, like issues in, in the Benelux region, all, all kinds of linking to, to companies in, you know, in, in France and, and you know, all, all over the world. So I was wondering kind of which, which of the non-Chinese kind of angles of, of, the, of the investigation you, you think, you know, more people should know about and, and, and how, what kind of fallout you see happening in other, other kind of big, big um, centers around the world. There's so much. Um, and we both have we both have some of our favorites. I mean, uh, I think there's some really inter interesting investigations into Lebanese companies. You know, Eric, especially as you know from living in Kinshasa, God, I think there's one of the. It is an incredibly diverse place when it comes to the business community, right? I mean, you have these huge communities of of Belgians and and Lebanese and, and Greeks and Americans and Chinese and Japanese and Koreans and I mean, it's a, a really kind of not to mentioned from all the, the countries of Africa too, um, you know, neighboring or, or far away. And it's a, a fascinating, fascinating place to report because of that. And, you know, I think we found a lot of links to various Lebanese companies that have links to Hezbollah. We found, you know, links to some Namibian uh, companies, uh, Faroe Islands. Um, there's a, a really interesting piece that, that I could talk about. I'm sure Will has some other favorites, but you know, one of my favorites is just a, for the first time a, a look at a, a Belgian businessman named Philip Philip Philippe Demerlouz, who um, has uh, had a close relationship to to President Kabila for years, and he was the man who who imported a lot of the heavy machinery, cars and tractors and things like that to Congo. And there there was a three part series uh, out of 
our Belgian partners um, into Philippe de Merlouz that I think that people should look look into. One of the things we're doing, I think, now is kind of filling in uh, the last 15 years of history in Congo. Um, There's some lacuna that we haven't really been able to look into because it's just been so difficult. And uh, we're, we're finally filling it in and, and seeing how business really happened and how politics really happened in Congo um, over the past 15 years. And I think that Congo holdup has enabled us to do that for the Chinese in this case or some of the other uh, um, investigations that the other media partners did. But William probably has a, a few other favorites as well. I'll just mention two. One was a story done by our uh, part, one of our partners in the Faroe Islands, which uh, I didn't know any of this. That's why I found it interesting um, it, how uh, Faroe Island companies uh, could be used to sort of muddy and conceal the, uh, the ownership of, of vessels. And those vessels, which were ultimately financed with public money from um, from uh, public money, transited through BGFI and used to uh, transport um, uh, transport all sorts of things to 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 to, to Congo. But it, one of the things used to transport was um, sort of zebras and gazelles and giraffes uh, to Joseph Kabila's. Um, uh, private nature reserve. Uh, some of the money was public money. Some of it wasn't. Some of it actually came from CCC. So some of CCC's money, Do's money, well, the money that Do um, distributed went to uh, one of these uh, Faroe Island registered vessels. Uh, and the other one was sort of more basic, but it showed it was work done by our, by the Century and just showed um, the ease with which the uh, brother of Kabila, who ran BGFI Bank in Congo for ten years, was able to buy um, buy uh, real estate in in the United States in Washington in particular. Um, how he didn't really have any problems to do that, and obviously that shows you know this shows that this is not just about congo not just about uh, a country that can be dismissed as um as you know sort of third world and corrupt that the corrupt you know if corruption that happens in congo the money goes somewhere and in this case it went quite easily to the united states so you know it's a useful illustration of the international dimensions of this and how things to resolve it need to be done outside congo too it's the old story with the Congo that everybody's hands are dirty. It's just always the way it's been with that country. It's unbelievable. The Faroe Islands, just by the way, you're talking about those little tiny speck of an islands off the coast of Denmark that are best known for slaughtering dolphins, right? Yeah. That's that's the same Faroe Islands. Okay, good. It's that Faroe it's the, it's the It's the Northern European Faroe Islands. Yeah, I think there's only one. Boy, for such a small place, those guys are notorious. Yeah. They... They get into a lot of trouble for a tiny little speck of a place. And by the way, everybody, we've got the Century booked to come on the show in early January, so we'll dive deeper into the story in January. But for now, I recommend that everybody go check out the report on Bloomberg, China Cash Flow Through Congo Bank to Former President's Cronies, written by William Close, Bloomberg's reporter in Nigeria, but formerly in Kinshasa, and Michael Kavanaugh, Bloomberg's current reporter in the DRC. Both of you are on Twitter where can they find you on Twitter? William, what's the best way for people to connect with you on uh, on social media? My uh, DMs are open and my, I think I'm at WTB Klaus. Very easy to find. Okay. And then Michael, where can they find you? I'm at MJK Congo. Okay, there it's go. Thank you both for taking the time to join us. A fascinating report. Congratulations on the investigation. And it was a pleasure to talk with you. You too. Thank you very much. Thanks, Cobus. Thanks, Eric. Okay, Cobus. So 
The only takeaway that you can have from this kind of conversation from people who are on the ground is that whenever there is a simple narrative about the Chinese in the Congo, don't believe it. Okay, because it's not true. Nothing conforms to simple narratives there. And this whole idea that the Chinese are not providing the infrastructure, again, as Michael pointed out, it's complicated. There's a governance side on the Congolese side that makes it difficult. There's a lack of transparency on both sides here. It's a hall of mirrors in Kinshasa. You really never know what you're looking at. And so when you you go online and you see these kind of quick takes from all sorts of people and you just, you know, you got to resist that temptation because nothing is as it seems in the Congo. You know, and again, I'm surprised that people like Michael and William tend to be optimistic about the future and what this portends for the future. And that's encouraging to your point and to their point. The role of, of civil society in all of this is huge. And this isn't just Westerners. There is also a very important role that's being played by groups like AfriWatch and the EITI branch in uh, in Congo, in Kinshasa, the Extractives Industry Transparency Initiative that's there. Very dynamic civil society that's playing a role here. So lots to be encouraged. But at the same time, I think with the Congo, you always have to step back and wait and take a breath and really think about it and speak to four, five, six, 25, 30 people to really figure out what's going on. Yeah, the Congo is really a handful. <laughs> it's like really, really quite quite something. The thing is, you know, that the Congo is so huge. Obviously, like like many people always point out that the Congo is the size of Western Europe. And it's it really is physically and and in lots of other ways at the heart of Africa. You know, if the Congo works, Africa works. If the and the, the fact that the Congo has been so dysfunctional means that the continent that it seeps over into the rest of the continent. You know, the like if for example the Congo has hydropower, you know, capacity that could power most of the subcontinent. Um, it's mineral riches. It's you know, it's 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 if if the Congo were run well, then the entire continent would thrive. Um, and the fact that it's run so badly and that it has been run so badly since colonial times is still dragging the whole continent down with it, you know, and, and, and that is, it's just this on, ongoing, really kind of painful thing. Um, you know, it's just, it's just really like this kind of puzzle that sits at the heart of Africa. I've always felt that nobody has a vested interest in the Congo succeeding. Because as you've pointed out, if the Congo was ever to fulfill even 50% of its potential, it would become a superpower. Given the wealth that it has, the landmass that it has, the geography, it has port access. I mean, it is, it is a truly incredible country, culturally, historically, geographically, and resource-wise. It has the means to be a superpower. But... Rwanda has never found it in its interest. Uganda has never found in its interest. And the superpowers during the Cold War never found it in its interest for the Congo to be strong and stable. And it's just been cursed by history. And it is, it, again, I, I have a very special place for the DRC. I've visited there many times. I lived there briefly. It is where the China Africa Project started. And even in the short time that I lived there, it, was, it, it, it has captivated me. And, and it's just really one of the most incredible places in the world. And you really hope, I mean, really hope that it's going to turn a corner with the Chesakati elections uh, and, and, and Chesakati's government and, and in the next year. And, and again, so I really want to believe 
the optimism that we're going to, that Michael was talking about. But at the end of the day, I think one always has to be very cautious about the Congo. A couple other points here, just to, while we're talking about the Congo, it's interesting because what he said about the fact that we never know which infrastructure projects are tied to the Sikkimins deal and which ones are not, or to the China-Mali deal or to any of these big mining deals. But there have been quite a few infrastructure announcements over the past few months And I think we're going to see this pick up next year quite a bit. Again, maybe just for optics, maybe timing. I don't know why. Again, nothing is as it seems in the Congo. But we we covered this week the fact that uh, National Road 1, which is a massive road that goes, uh, I think it was at least between one and 2,000 kilometers, all the way from Kinshasa down to Lumbumbashi. The Chinese are starting to rehabilitate 96 kilometers of that, and they're going to start keep doing on that. That's a really important road. And again, roads are so important in the Congo because A, there are so few of them, and B, because this is such a fractious country that is not really that unified, in part because there are not overland transport links between the east, the west, and the west and the south. And so building more roads and facilitating transportation is super important. The Chinese are also uh, involved in building a new power station in Kinshasa. Lots of development happening in Kinshasa. And, and then there's a huge arts and cultural center that's coming into Kaolesi. Uh, actually, no, that's coming into Kinshasa as well. And then there's a new training and vocational school that's opening up in Kaolesi, which is the heart of the cobalt zone there in the southeast. So, so many things happening on the infrastructure front that... Again, we can't really tell. Is it because of these deals? Is it because of the optics? Is it because of things that are totally unrelated? Who knows? But it, a lot is happening in the Congo. And as I said at the beginning of the program, this is by far, in my opinion, the most consequential relationship that China has today in Africa, bar none. Would you agree or disagree with that? Um, yes, I think I would agree. I mean, in in some ways, it's it, it still is in some in, in key ways a much narrower relationship than than with say South Africa. You know, because I think in in, in many ways South Africa also could is, is a is a strong candidate for for its most important relationship because it covers so much ground. Um, it's it's across corporate and state and all of these different different fields, like Djibouti, for example, trade, military, but things banking. Like that. You know, kind of headquarters of companies in Johannesburg. You know, all of all of those kind of things, and the fact that that so much of Chinese business runs through through Johannesburg into the continent and trade as well through the port of Durban. Yes, yes. So so in that sense, I might I might disagree because you know, like it's it's like the the, the DRC's niche is 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 narrower but deeper. That's right. You know. In, in the sense that that it, it, it really is is fundamental to, to Chinese kind of strategic kind of interests for for the next fifteen years at least. That's right. So, related specifically to cobalt, so this is a very particular relationship. But as we've talked about, this may be short lived because there is a growing impatience in the auto industry, especially in the U.S., Europe, Japan, and Korea, about being dependent on cobalt from the DRC that is largely controlled by Chinese interests, both in the mining and then in the processing. Also, what we reported this week is that uh, three 
cobalt processing facilities and factories in Zhejiang province are offline now. Again, that just points to more problems in the supply chain and the reluctance and the apprehension that a lot of international automakers have to be reliant on China for cobalt. So maybe the move away from cobalt power EV batteries to lithium ion, sodium ion uh, batteries may actually end the importance of Congo, at least for cobalt. Copper will still probably be very important. So yeah, such an interesting discussion. Boy, we've had really a, a just a week of, of fascinating discussions, uh, both with Andy Mock and now with the team from, from Bloomberg. But one of the big stories that we're going to be covering next year in depth is going to be the Congo. So if it's the most consequential or the second most consequential relationship for Africa, it is one of the most. Very, very important. And also just want to take note of Ambassador Zhu Jing. If you're not following him, I highly recommend it. He's an interesting guy. And he's in, and it looks like he's gaining a very high profile in the Congo, given the prominence of these issues. And I get the sense that Ambassador Ju is going to be a guy that we'll be hearing from again in Africa for a number of years. Remember that Chinese diplomats stay in their regions for quite some time. They don't circulate the way that U.S. and Europeans do, where they'll go from Africa to Asia to South America, back to Washington and so forth, that you look at the profiles of a lot of Chinese ambassadors and they will have spent 8, 10, 12 years in different posts on the continent. And I do get the sense that Ambassador Zhu is a guy who's probably going to move maybe to South Africa or to Kenya or to Nigeria onto a, an even higher post. And he's got a Twitter feed, which is often very interesting. And he gets into these nasty little squabbles with uh, people like Peter Pham, who's this, I don't know how you describe Peter Pham. He's a, an American, you know, former Trump diplomat who's got his eye probably on a, becoming the assistant secretary of state under a next Trump administration. That's probably what he's won. He's at the Atlantic Council, but boy, he trolls Ambassador Ju, and he's very anti-Chinese in Africa, and they, for some reason, fall for it. I don't understand, Kobus. When you see a guy like Peter Pham trolling you, don't respond. You know the old rule of don't feed the trolls, and <laughs> that's a mantra that we live by, and I'm just, like, I'm, every time I see Ambassador Ju comment back to Peter Pham, I'm just like, dude, you're falling right into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just, just finally also, I would, uh, you know, like we, we've, we've spoken so much about the, the problems of the Congo, but I would also also encourage people to actually do, go to Spotify wherever you, you stream music and check out Congolese music um, because if throughout some of the worst conflicts in the world some of the most heinous kind of human rights abuses through some of the, the worst underdevelopment Congo has somehow managed to build up this incredible kind of treasury of, of music um, so really check it out Congolese pop music is really amazing let's leave on a positive note it is a it's a truly wonderful place it has had its difficulties it has been cursed but let's hope that Michael's right and they're turning a corner and that this is really something new. And, and again, we'll continue to follow this in the new year. We've got another discussion coming up with The Century. And also, as we've alluded in some of our previous shows, uh, we're going to be launching a new Arabic and French service next year. And our editor is from the Congo. So we're going to have a lot of great coverage of China DRC relations in 2022. We're looking forward to having you join us. And we're going to be having newsletters in both French and Arabic for you to subscribe to as well. So if you are a Francophone and Arabophone, this is going to be really cool. So anyway, that'll do it for this edition of the show. Cobus Knight will be back 
for one last episode this year for our year in review, year in preview show, uh, sometime before the end of the year. Not quite sure when we're going to do it. We're going to take a little break next week, but we'll have that last show for you uh, before the end of 2021. We'd like to thank you again for all of your support both this year and over the years and to all of our subscribers and to our Patreon members and to everybody who listens and are really are just our wonderful audience. Uh, just again, a quick thank you. We're going to say it again next week in our, in, our, in our last show of the year, but it's something that we feel from the bottom of our heart. And we just want to say that one more time. So until our last show of 2021, for Gobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.